Okay, and welcome. My name is Samantha Davis, and I am the moderator for today's webinar. This webinar is called Building Trust, COVID-19 Vaccination Hesitancy Among Clinicians. And I have two panelists here. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Uh, we can start with Anna, go ahead. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Anna Gersten. I am finishing my last year of pulmonary and critical care fellowship at Johns Hopkins. Um, and I can give a little bit more information about myself. Um, I am here representing both the chest ILD network as well as the chest interprofessional network um, and have spent the better part of the last year or so taking care of patients with COVID. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Daniel McKamey. I'm currently an acute care nurse practitioner. Um, I also serve as the chief of the pre-anesthesia testing department, and I'm the vice chair of the um, uh, palliative care end of life care network. Um, I still do um, uh, critical care, so I had the opportunity to care for a lot of our COVID patients um, during the surge and still currently. All right, fantastic. And as I said, my name is Samantha Davis. I am a respiratory therapist and faculty at Boise State University. I am part of the interprofessional network at CHEST and I am moderating our session today. So the first question that I have for the panelists is over the past year, we've heard many reasons why clinicians are hesitant to get a COVID-19 vaccine. These concerns are valid, and I think it's important that we continue to build trust. So how have you encouraged your colleagues to get and promote receiving the vaccine? Um, I guess I can go first. And I, I have to admit, I was one of those providers that was extremely hesitant in moving forward with the um, COVID-19 vaccination. And uh, a lot of it was just kind of a culmination of um, wanting to learn more for myself, um, looking at the data, uh, comparing the different clinical trials, and then also uh, bearing the burden of identifying as a woman of color and um, having the anxiety of my family um, with their questions about kind of uh, the controversies on how quickly the vaccination was created, um, concerns about the safety profile, what kind of side effects, and then of course acknowledging the uh, historical trauma and uh, medical uh, distrust, racism associated with uh, scientific um, experimentation on black and brown bodies. So for me, it took a while for me to kind of, uh, I guess reconcile my clinician brain with, um, you know, the, the social cultural weight, if you will, of um, making the final decision. And I think the crux of me just deciding to move forward was um, uh, understanding the gravity of how sick patients were because of my opportunity to care for COVID patients. And then also I had the opportunity to listen to a um, NPR podcast, um, Dr. Ernest Grant, he's currently the president of um, the American Nurses Association and he's currently enrolled in a clinical trial. So hearing his testimony, um, being actively enrolled in a clinical trial and not knowing if he got placebo or the active um, vaccination really drove home to me and then understanding the importance of uh, representing um, people of color and part of the number so that we won't be behind in uh, the COVID vaccine. 
um, uh, understanding of how it behaves with us. So, and then just also standing on the, um, the, the right side of history and the right side of science. And then also being an example for my family, um, uh, demonstrating that it is safe, that um, the alternative is way more grim and um, sharing my experiences with them on kind of uh, just the, uh, the, the severity of the disease. So it was really important for me once I finally made the decision to um, embrace that and um, become an, a, basically a, a trusted voice for my, my family, my colleagues and uh, friends. And, and has it worked? Are you, have you been able to encourage people to get the um, vaccine? Yes, actually. So my um, oldest sister, she had a lot of anxiety around and she actually got COVID early on, but mild symptoms. Um, so she asked me a lot of questions and they kind of watched me like, okay, you got your second injection. So now what? So they kind of watched me like a science experiment for a while. <laughs> and then once they kind of saw that I was fine, um, my sister went ahead and did it. My nieces, though, they're still kind of on the fence. My mom, she's kind of of that cloth of just, you know, I, I think that I'm going to continue to mask and social distance and just continue to weigh the pros and cons of it. I will say, though, for my department that I'm the chief of, we had a lot of um, individuals that were uh, in the thoughtful phase um, in weighing the pros and cons and trying to educate themselves. And so them also knowing that I got the vaccine, asking me a lot of questions and we held a lot of space, a lot of huddles, lots of meetings. And then I'm happy to say that my department is hundred percent vaccinated. So it took some time, but um, you know, just honoring people where they are and understanding that there's a lot that we have to think about, um, especially um, being people of color. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, do you have anything to add, Anna? Your experience? Sure. Um, so prior to vaccines becoming available, I spent, oh goodness, probably four months um, kind of straight caring for patients in various COVID ICUs. And um, at that point, you know, we just kept having to pop up new ICUs and convert cardiac ICUs into red, red, uh, excuse me, um, you know, regular medical ICUs. And, and so um, I was there kind of helping to turn over several different ICUs. And I'll say, um, you know, I had never seen that much death and dying and, and people coming in that were just so unbelievably sick. Um, and so, you know, I remember kind of wearing my N95 and just being so terrified that, you know, I would accidentally touch my cell phone or my N95 would be old or didn't have the correct seal or something would happen. Um, and I think just those months and months of kind of fear within myself and, and amongst a lot of um, the colleagues that I was working with in the COVID ICUs, um, you know, I remember Dr. Fauci came and gave a grand rounds in late November saying, you know, vaccines are on the horizon. And several of us just started tearing up, just kind of being so excited about it. And so I, I think, you know, my experience kind of led me to jump at the chance to get the vaccine. Um, we at that point had kind of a lottery system and I was in the first batch and I honestly felt like I won the lottery. Um, I was just so excited to get it. Um, and uh, I didn't necessarily post a lot on social media, but was very open about getting the vaccine and kind of 
how that had made me feel and really filled me with a lot of hope at that time. Yeah, and social media is a, is a great point. There's been a lot of misinformation through social media and also people sharing their stories, which I think is very impactful. Uh, I do want to add to any attendees, if you have questions along the way, please put them in the chat and we will address them later on in the webinar. Um, so continuing our conversation, uh, we know that side effects are a known possibility with, with vaccines, but that possibility can be more daunting depending on who you are. So we know that clinical trials did not include folks who are pregnant or trying to conceive or immunosuppressed. Uh, what is known about these special populations and how might you advise a fellow clinician who expressed a concern in one of these areas? I'm happy to start by tackling this one, Danielle, um, unless you wanted to jump in. Um, so I'll say um, I primarily care for the ILD patient population, um, the majority of which are heavily immunosuppressed. And so, you know, it's been a, a real learning curve for us as we've gotten, you know, sparse, but some data coming back to in terms of when is the safety, when when is our best window for vaccinating, you know, these immunocompromised individuals and what happens if they're on rituximab versus Celsept or something else. And we still don't have great answers for that. Um, but I think with kind of the immunocompromised populations, what the general rule of thumb has been is because they're high risk patients, we want to try to get them vaccinated safely as quickly as possible. Um, and, you know, at least in our clinics have tried to do our best to provide the little data that we have and kind of what our best advice was. But ultimately, these are all, you know, discussions amongst the provider and the patient to try to figure out, you know, we had to give you that rituximab, we can give you the vaccine, it may not be as effective, but we're so worried that you could contract COVID and become so ill. And so, you know, I, I don't think there's a clear answer in, in any of the immunocompromised populations. And I think we're kind of working through all of that. And I think every specialist has really tried to put together the data and think about how how have patients responded to other types of vaccines you know what kind of comparisons can we make and and what's the best way we can put our heads together um, and then in terms of the questions about pregnant women and, and women who are you know seeking pregnancy the i'll answer the question about um fertility there on social media initially, there were reports from the quote unquote head of Pfizer saying that the COVID vaccine is equivalent to female sterilization. And um, those were not um, evidence-based claims. And um, the concern with fertility is syncytin-1 is um, an important protein within the formation of the placenta. And so the concern is that there's a five chain amino acid sequence that's the same as that in the spike protein, which is what the mRNA vaccines are going to target. And so that was the concern that the placenta would either not form properly or wouldn't be able to form at all. And um, no animal model has ever shown that. Um, and, and I think multiple 
multiple experts within the field have really debunked that. Um, and, you know, most of the OB big organizations have all issued statements saying for those seeking pregnancy that um, they should not delay receiving the vaccination given fertility concerns. Um, and I think that's been pretty uniform across the board. In terms of pregnant women, that's a, a bit of a different um, story. And the UK kind of nixed giving pregnant women the option to receive the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines initially, and that's subsequently changed a bit. Within the US, the CDC has always kind of stated that it should be a joint discussion between the pregnant woman's provider and her to kind of talk about, once again, what evidence do we have right now and what might the concerns be? And, you know, trying to together come up with a decision that most importantly, the pregnant woman feels comfortable moving forward with. Um, I, I do think we have very clear data that COVID infection itself is, is of high risk to pregnant women. And so that's a rationale um, as to why a pregnant woman would be more inclined to decide to receive the vaccine. But, um, you know, we, we don't have the data. What we do have is within the Pfizer and Moderna clinical trials, there were roughly equivalent numbers of women who became pregnant during the trial, and there was no increased risk of miscarriage or any other type of pregnancy complication. All right, thank you. Danielle, do you have anything to add? No, I don't, that was awesome. Okay, yeah, it was. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, continuing this, this same topic thread, I would say um, we've, there's a lack of diversity in clinical trials uh, that we know of. And it's gotten a lot of attention. We know that the majority of people who are dying from COVID are Black, Indigenous, Asian, or Latino communities, even though clinical trial participants are majority white. Um, and we also know that access to care and to the COVID-19 vaccine adds an additional layer here. Uh, so what are some of the most pressing vaccine distribution inequities today? Uh, and how do you think we can address some of those? Um, so messaging is really key. Um, how we communicate um, specifically to communities of color, um, meeting them where they are. And I, I feel like the tide has changed where um, we are um, changing our approach to meet these communities where they are. Um, also recruiting um, uh, trusted messengers, vaccine ambassadors, if you will, um, and also, um, I was watching this news story about a lady in North Baton Rouge. They call her the um, vaccine crusader. And she had, has made a commitment out of her own suffering of uh, being a frontline worker, contracting COVID, giving it to her husband and her elderly father, and them actually dying from it. So it has spurred this fire within her to go to communities of color knocking on their doors because a lot of these communities don't have cell phone access or computer access to even try to get um, signed up for the lottery and is literally 
paper in hand, pen in hand, signing up people to get registered. And um, her story kind of went viral, if you will, and caught the attention of this news broadcast. And so they found that this uh, underserved community, there's this large pharmacy that hadn't um, taken the time to request vaccine. And so they went to the pharmacy and said, we've got this vaccine crusader who has literally gotten thousands of names for people that don't have access to computer technology that have a desire to get vaccine. Can you request a vaccine? And um, it was noted that this particular pharmacy was basically a pillar in this residence, but they hadn't requested vaccine. So um, raising awareness um, and finding uh, what we call is a kinfolk, um, leveraging kind of kinships, um, uh, people that identify with the communities to say, I've got the vaccine and this is why I got it. And let's talk about why you should get it too. So I think messaging and communication is super key in providing sound evidence and education that is easily understandable for those um, that aren't healthcare workers or into the science um, so that they feel comfortable and optimistic about um, receiving the vaccine. Yeah, and I think that there are a lot of layers here to to access, right? So uh, I think about my my mother in law is a is a black woman and had and she's also blind and she had these same uh, hesitations or just wasn't sure what she wanted to do and through discussions with my wife and her family, um, they've decided she's decided to get vaccinated, but even getting her signed up. Uh, is challenging. She's blind. And so she can't navigate the systems. They say that they might text you when they have an open spot or when you can sign up, which isn't helpful uh, to her. And so, yeah, there are a lot of, so many layers. Um, Okay. Uh, So something came through in the chat and this was on our, our agenda of things to talk about today. But the use of the phrase vaccine hesitancy compared to vaccine thoughtfulness um, and which term should be used? What are the implications of using either term? Uh, there are different perspectives. And so I'm, I'm interested to hear what your perspectives are. Uh, how does using the phrase vaccine hesitancy impact folks who are weighing the pros and cons of vaccination? So I'm kind of on the fence where I feel like vaccine hesitancy could potentially have some negative connotations, especially for those that are taking the time to educate themselves, um, the pros and cons, speaking to their communities, trying to find trusted messengers, that language matters, words matter. And I think that um, how we frame it can also impact kind of like the the acceptance or kind of the... uh, um, yeah, yeah, the acceptance around it. And so I, I just worry that us using utilizing hesitancy could put more discrimination, discriminatory kind of box around those that are actively uh, um, considering it. And then also, not, I feel like the hesitancy in, in some case could discount people's legitimate concerns based on historical Um, context, experimentation, like I mentioned um, before on black and brown bodies, racism that's been inherent in the medical system, and and that's no secret. So um, 
a couple of colleagues and I, we, we've, uh, you know, in our conversations with individuals that have been labeled having vaccination hesitancy, we like to reframe it to look toward uh, maybe considering uh, vaccination thoughtfulness, that they're putting that thought process together um, and that it's valid that they're taking their time and they may not be hesitant. Um, even um, looking at vaccination optimism, especially since um, with the new CDC recommendations that those that are vaccinated we could we could hang out, <laughs> and um, so also painting vaccinations in kind of that light that it is moving toward somewhat of a, a light at the end of at the end of the tunnel, if you will. No pun intended on either way, um, but I just worry about the way we as healthcare providers, knowing the the social capital we have, the words that we use really weigh heavily on some individuals, and especially how they interpret and internalize it. Um, to help motivate them one way or another. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a challenge, I think, because the literature, everything that we, we see and the messaging that comes out says vaccine hesitancy. And so, um, yeah, there's some complexity there. Um, Anna, do you have anything to add? I love the term vaccine thoughtfulness. You know, I think I think we in the medical community really should be encouraging everyone to think before just blindly accepting anything that we say, you know, and I think we are very far away from the era of paternalistic medicine and we are probably on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, which is a good thing in the sense that people should feel empowered to look things up on their own to ask the questions, um, you know, and, and I was sharing earlier, I, I hadn't heard of the concerns with using that terminology, but I completely understand. And, and I really love the term thoughtfulness, just because I think you're almost providing a compliment, which is kind of awesome for people that are seeking out a bit more information. So our, our next topic that I want to get into is, um, Vaccination among, among trainees, medical trainees, health profession students, uh, during the initial vaccine rollout phases, many places didn't include students and trainees uh, in their plans, despite those folks having direct exposure and access to patients who have COVID-19. Uh, and even in some cases, clinicians were excluded from their own facilities rollout plan. So building trust in this newly developed vaccine can be made even more difficult when students and clinicians receive this message that they're not a priority despite being essential workers. Uh, so can you talk about how you've seen that play out among your networks and the impact that it's had? Sure, I, I think this is a really important topic. Um, and I think, you know, COVID has been tough on every single person within healthcare, whatever your job is, but I think trainees of any profession have been hit especially hard. Their education has been compromised a lot of the time. They're working a lot of extra hours, sometimes working in roles that they, they may not have traditionally been assigned to. Um, and, you know, I think across the board trainees, um, I'll say at least from the physician perspective, took on the 
bulk of responsibility for primary care for the patients with COVID. Um, and that meant, you know, despite fears and, and challenges, doing everything possible for these patients, watching more death than a lot of people um, had ever seen before. And I think in, in some ways, it really brought people together. And I'll say I had never felt closer to a lot of my co-fellows than I did when we were all in the trenches, you know, just doing what we could to do right by our patients and you know, I think from the nursing perspective, you know, when we were converting ICUs that traditionally took cardiac patients and now you're taking these patients with horrible, you know, respiratory failure and a lot of these nurses had never proned a patient or had never been in these roles before. And I think the bonding that occurred, I will never forget and I will never forget how many people just stood up to the plate and did everything they could. Um, you know, I remember there were a few instances where with um, a team that had never proned a patient before and um, what that means is kind of moving them over in bed and, and remember these patients have multiple central lines, they've got arterial lines, they've got a breathing tube. And so I remember initially it would be about 10 of us in the room just protecting every you know line possible and, and doing what the patient needed. And I think um, in that climate, there was a lot of hope and optimism and when universities, and I, I won't name anyone by name, um, came out with vaccine guidelines that completely excluded trainees, um, it was devastating, you know, and um, we're all somewhat connected. And, you know, it was heartbreaking watching the footage of just devastation that these trainees were experiencing. And at that point, a lot of them were on their 10th month of clinical care for this very sick population and, and people that had zero direct clinical contact were receiving the vaccination before them. And it, it was really upsetting. And so, you know, I think I am incredibly lucky and I will name out Johns Hopkins by name because they did a very solid job of, you know, they didn't care whatever your profession was. You just declared when your contact or what your level of exposure to COVID-19 positive patients was and how frequently you were in contact with those patients. And that's exactly how they triaged. So it didn't matter whatever your role was, everyone was the same. It just mattered, you know, what is your exposure risk? And I will say that kind of a response really brings people together again, because, you know, it, it matters how an organization views you and your risk to a potentially deadly disease. And I think um, there was a lot of challenges that organizations that had different prioritization kind of faced and, and continue to face. And I I I can't say that I blame anyone for being frustrated, you know, not being in an that type of organization, I just felt really upset for those people. And I do sincerely hope that this is a lesson moving forward, that um, we're all humans. And while everyone should absolutely be empowered to make whatever decision they decide about the vaccine, 
being offered the vaccine needs to be uniform and needs to be available to those who are at highest risk of transmission from those positive patients, in my opinion. Yeah, I can add that uh, with, so I'm faculty in a respiratory program, as I mentioned, and my respiratory care students were front and center caring for patients who have this respiratory disease, right? And uh, it was a struggle to see them potentially going to clinical sites where they were not allowed to be vaccinated or they weren't provided the proper PPE and um, 95 masks and things like that. We were, you know, trying to get all of that prepared on our end, but yeah, <laughs> that it's, it's complex. Um, Danielle, do you have anything to add? Okay. Um, so we've mentioned this a little bit already. Uh, one of the most effective ways we know to change a narrative is to pair these one-on-one -on -one conversations that we've been talking about with uh, robust public health campaigns and clear guidance from places that, uh, like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, and we mentioned these new guidelines that have recently been released. So how will these updates make folks more optimistic or encourage them to get vaccinated? I mean, I think that just the fact that, you know, with the new CDC guidelines saying vaccinated folks that are vaccinated can feel free to mingle without restrictions, all, that within itself is, uh, could be utilized in our one-on-one -on -one conversation as a motivating factor um, and, and kind of change, like I mentioned earlier, from, you know, vaccination doom to vaccination optimism, um, especially since the vaccine's been out for a while, more and more individuals are, um, we're, we're expanding more on the data, getting more um, understanding of side effect profile safety, um, expanding it to different po vulnerable populations. And so, um, I know for me, I've definitely utilized the new CDC guidelines as um, part of some of my uh, selling points, if you will, for those that are still on the fence, like outside's going to open back up, but only if you're vaccinated type thing. So um, I think utilizing trusted resources like CDC um, and uh, the vaccine optimism, I feel like is key in the one-on-one -on -one conversations. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, and, you know, I think one thing we haven't kind of yet really touched upon is um, the timing in which the vaccines were soon to emerge was in a very um, political time. And, um, you know, not to bring the conversation too much into politics, but the reason I bring this up is that I think the political campaigns um, were very firmly entrenched in some of the policies around COVID, where the information was going to go, how it was going to be disseminated. And I think that there was a fair amount of distrust that developed and really became heightened during the election itself. And, and so I think um, 
people had trouble knowing where do I get my information from? How accurate is this information? Um, how frequently is it changing? You know, ultimately, can I trust what government agencies are telling me? And I, I think, um, you know, I'm optimistic that moving forward, I'm hopeful that there will be more trust in organizations like the CDC, but I, I think it's it's going to take us a little while to be at the place where our average American citizen is automatically going to the CDC and the CDC says it's okay to have dinner with vaccinated people, so that's okay. You know, and I, I think a lot of people are now moving in that direction and, and I think that's helpful because I think across the board, you know, it's helpful for us to have national guidance as kind of a, a top tier. And then below that to have guidance from our communities and our community leaders that, that we trust, whoever those people may be. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of debate about whether organizations or employers can mandate vaccination. And that's a very tough call because remember, these are all under emergency use authorization. They're not even fully FDA approved, but there have been organizations that have mandated that their employees get vaccinated. And that's then resulted in a fair amount of backlash. And so I think there, I'm hopeful that we can reach a place where we trust national government organizations and we have a climate in which vaccine thoughtfulness is encouraged and um, that people in general feel like they can have very educated, open conversations with their hopefully primary care providers, but maybe some of their specialists as well, just to kind of really be able to talk about what are their concerns, what have they read, um, you know, and really have an open dialogue to ultimately reach a decision that the patient is comfortable with. Um, because, you know, there are very valid concerns and there are side effects to these vaccines and, and they're very rarely, if ever, life-threatening, but that doesn't mean that people aren't entitled to kind of knowing what, what they may be in for if they get the vaccine and, and ultimately restoring trust amongst ourselves in the best way that we can. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. Um, going along with this, with what you were saying about um, facilities maybe mandating a vaccine or, or requiring it, uh, what might you say to folks who have concerns about which vaccine they want to get, uh, but maybe they don't have a choice because their facility only has one option? That's a fantastic question um, and a really important one. Um, you know, I think it's also hard because, you know, people are signing up for Department of Health vaccination sites and they don't know what vaccine they're getting, right? They could get Johnson & Johnson, be one and done, but 
overall have a lower efficacy or they could be getting Moderna and they have to come back, you know, four weeks from them. They could be getting Pfizer and have to come back in three weeks. And so I, I, I think understandably there's concern in kind of relinquishing that control of which vaccination they'll receive. And to date, um, I myself had no control over which vaccine I received. And many of my patients will kind of call me frantically from a vaccination center and say, I thought they were going to give me an mRNA vaccine. And they just told me I have Johnson and Johnson. Can I take it? Um, you know, and, and my answer for the majority of my patients, if I feel that they're in a place to accept any type of vaccine that they are comfortable with that decision, is, you know, while we still have a somewhat limited supply, which hopefully is changing and, and will continue to change, is, you know, if, if your desire is to get your COVID vaccine as soon as possible, then whatever they offer you is reasonable. That being said, um, it's hard to agree to a vaccine with a lower efficacy. Um, and while I would never tell someone, oh, oh, don't do that, get another vaccine, I, I think once again, this comes down to our ability to educate and say, you know, it might be so much easier for you to do the one dose because then you don't have to miss another day of work or you don't have to have transportation concerns or other things. But that being said, you know, and, and I'm not saying that a 65% efficacy is not worthwhile at all, but I think it is something that everyone should be thoughtful of. Anything to add, Danny, before I keep going? Yeah, I would just say I would agree. And, and again, just reaffirming people where they are and then, and then refocusing them to the ultimate goal is, you know, we all want to ensure um, a reasonable amount of protection against severe disease and death um, because people are still dying. People are still getting um, critically ill and um, taking advantage of the opportunity, though it may not be, um, you know, their number one choice, but um, taking hold of the opportunity to get vaccinated. So that's just my little addition. Thank you for that. Uh, so throughout our our session today, we've talked a little bit about social media and the impact of both positive messaging and misinformation that can come through. Uh, so what are your experiences with messaging as trusted health professionals uh, with folks who interact with you or who follow you? Go ahead, Anna. No, sorry, Danielle, please. Well, I, um, I'm more of a one-on-one -on -one person. Um, I, like I said, my story with the vaccine, it was a lot of cultural influence and clinical brain influence. So I wasn't as public with um, my vaccination process as others, um, just because I've had, I had that kind of, I don't want to say inner conflict, but basically that inner conflict. So for me, I, I, valued the one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I took the opportunity to talk to my family, um, debrief with them, and then just one-on-one -on -one with my staff. So, and then in terms of the social media stuff, 
I would uh, repost um, education from like CDC, um, uh, CHEST, obviously, um, reputable um, healthcare associations with the accurate information to educate my followers. But in terms of my journey and, you know, arm out, guns out, you know, um, vaccine, for me, it was a, a private decision. Um, but I chose to just do one-on-one -on -one conversations that way. And I think, Danielle, when studies ask the general population, I think it's 81 or 82 percent of people prefer to receive their information through information through one-on-one -on -one conversations. I, I think in, in a lot of ways, it's human nature. Um, and I think it's, I love what you said about, you know, posting articles or information from reputable sources, because I, I think in a lot of ways, some of this really got derailed by information presented as a reputable source that really wasn't, um, that then was spread all over social media with a lot of commentary and not a whole lot of um, solid information. And I will say, um, you know, especially during the time of the election, I had watched the Netflix documentary, um, The Social Dilemma, and it really changed my perspective just because you go on Google and you Google something and you think that what you're Googling is also what Samantha or Danielle is Googling or what I'm Googling. It's not. And, and I think that's important because I, I think in the era of social media, we need to be thoughtful of the fact that things can be very distorted and skewed. And we don't want people to see that, accept that as fact, and then move forward. We want people to look at information that's ideally peer reviewed and from a reputable support source, that's um, work. And then um, for people to then feel empowered to take that information to their provider and say, you know, I saw this, I saw that, what do you think about it? And really facilitate a climate of mutual decision-making with the emphasis on education and transparency. And I think, um, you know, there, there has been a lot of concern about the rapidity in which these vaccines went through clinical trials. And, you know, we had this mass production before the FDA, at least in the US, had even authorized emergency use. Um, so, you know, and they had great data from phase three clinical trials and all the reason to think so. Um, but, you know, naming something Operation Warp Speed is probably not the way to necessarily elicit trust amongst everyone. And so um, I saw, I think, NYU Langone released, it's about a three minute video and it's a beautiful video where there's a PhD epidemiologist and she very clearly goes through kind of 
how did the vaccine development occur? Why did it happen so quickly? And I think that's really important. And in this video, she shows kind of a bridge and says, you know, the infrastructure, at least for mRNA vaccines, was already there. So it wasn't starting from ground zero, building up this bridge to then make it to clinical trials. We knew about um, SARS and MERS, and we had thought about vaccinations for those other viruses that are very similar to COVID-19. And so I think if we're explaining things in clear ways and accurate ways so that people are able to understand a bit more kind of what, what truly happened, what do the clinical trials really show without necessarily needing to read New England Journal of Medicine papers because we can't expect the majority of our population to do that. But I think if we within healthcare can figure out a way to really distill that into a clear, concise message and then present that and have people like me, you know, sharing that on my Twitter and my Facebook, then I think it would be a lot more beneficial for that information to continue to be disseminated rather than heading down this, this very dangerous slope of um, presenting data in what looks like a journal article, but really isn't. I think as clinicians, we're in this unique place because on our social media feeds, we have people um, similar to us who are sharing the same information from the CDC or whatever source. Uh, but we also have family members maybe who aren't sure whether or not they want to get the vaccine. And so we, uh, it's a mixture, right, of those one-on-one -on -one conversations that we were talking about and also sharing this, this information for other clinicians and people who might interact with us. So uh, considering all that we've talked about today, how can we motivate folks to get vaccinated? And what would you say is our take home message? Uh, I'm always passionate about meeting people where they are. So whatever that looks like for the um, patient population that you know that you're caring for. Um, and um, also recognizing we're in this together. So, um, and if COVID-19, the pandemic hasn't taught us anything, it, it's definitely taught us that and the value of uh, working together and just uh, being cognizant and caring for, taking care of each other. So that's my takeaway. And I think my takeaway would be, you know, we're in an era of an abundance of information. Um, and I think within the medical field, I think a lot of the onus is really on us to learn to become educated ourselves. And I totally agree with Danielle to be able to talk to others at the stage where they're at. And that doesn't mean that one conversation is the decision of vaccination or not. That means that that's the groundwork. And then the next conversation is the next conversation. And maybe it'll go in one direction. Maybe it'll go in the other direction. But I think the more that we're able to meet people where they're at, 
the more that we're able to clearly present educated information and do that, you know, consistently, I think the more of a message that we'll be able to give across the board of uniformity and what the answers to questions are. And hopefully that that will translate to a greater number of people developing a bit more trust in the medical profession in general and, and what we're asking them to do by receiving these vaccinations. And I think, you know, from, from an optimistic viewpoint, I think that would be a huge step forward and I think would really move healthcare in a really great and positive direction. And I think if there's one good thing that comes out of all of this, I, I think that would be really nice to see. I agree. Uh, so that brings us to the end of our questions. Uh, we've been incorporating questions from the audience along the way. So we don't have any more of those to address right now, but I want to thank the, our panelists here today for sharing their time and their expertise and their stories. Uh, so thank you both very much. And uh, that's it from us. Thank you everyone for joining and we hope you have a good day. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye-bye.